it would sound as though it was really planned that Bobby would uh, support the kind of things that our church has been doing in terms of real life ministries and going down there and coming back and the things that we've tried to implement. And, and that's actually not the case. We had no idea. In fact, when, when, when we asked Bobby to come and do something for us here at the beginning of the fall, initially, we had no idea that he was as into what Jim Putman and those folks have been doing at Real Life Ministries as he is. In fact, it was a pleasant surprise. It was not a shock, but it was a pleasant surprise. And I, I was encouraged by the just the fact of listening to him say the things that he said this morning, how closely those coincided with the things that we have been doing here. Now, obviously, by the time all this got worked out, by then he really understood what we were doing and we understood what he was doing and we were on the same page. But initially, that was not the case. Like, if you would have asked me six months ago, what does Bob Harrington think about this? I would have said, well, I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure. So I'm excited that God worked it out, that Bob could come here, and that the things that we have been focusing on are so much in line with where he is. There is a very good fit. And the only way to explain that, I think, is to talk in terms of God having done something here. It's a beautiful thing when you invite a speaker and then find out in the course of all of it that not only is he mildly interested in what you're doing, but he would say things like he said this morning, this is the only hope for restoration movement churches in Western Canada. That's the way a lot of people here have been feeling. And to have him say the same kind of thing and to support that was really cool. It was, like, it was just nice to know that God was orchestrating things in that way. And so I'm really uh, I'm grateful for that. Like that's, uh, that's been a real positive thing. Tonight what's going to happen is Bobby is going to share a bit. Are you going to do your ten things? At least those? Okay, he's got, some ten, he's got ten things at least that he wants to share with us tonight. And then after that we're going to have a Q&A. Q &A, and uh, you'll just have a chance to ask him questions. Questions about uh, where we want to go. And to, like he knows that now. He's, he is totally understanding uh, where we're wanting to go. And you could ask him questions about that. You could ask him about the history of real life ministries or uh, their effectiveness. Uh, there's just all kinds of things with which he is familiar when it comes to what we're trying to do. Because as we've just heard, he is very much behind the same exact thing, which I think is just so much of God and his spirit, and I'm grateful for that. Why don't you uh, stand up here again, sir, yep. and we will pray and ask God to bless you as you share with us this evening. Holy Father, we are so grateful uh, for Bobby's ministry, grateful for what he's doing here and the, the way that he's already shared with us today. We have a chance again, God, tonight to do some interaction with him. And, and God, for you to use this time, there's chance here for you, Lord, through your spirit to be present and to work something, to do something, to intervene, to connect. And we want you to do that tonight. We want you to, to use Bobby in that way. And so we thank you for again for his presence. We pray you would bless him as he, as he uh, shares and as he responds and, and even bless our hearts as we receive and ask questions too. Thank you, God, for the way in which you're working through us. We pray you'd shower your blessings down upon us all. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kelly.
Well, good to see you all. Good to see you all, you know, kind of scrunched together. That's good. I'd like to see that. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting what Kelly said. I'll tell you my story. Um, it, this was in the spring of 2006, and it was my day off, and I was at home, and uh, I had prayer time, and I was feeling like that uh, I needed to work on my leadership, and so I, I just had a really good prayer time with God, where I felt like I prayed and asked God to help me to become a better leader. And uh, I got up from praying. It was in my living room on my knees. It was in the middle of the day. And my phone rang. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to answer that. It's my day off. But I, this is terrible. Curiosity always gets the best of me. I look at my phone. It was this number I didn't recognize. I thought, i got to answer that. <laughs> so I answered the phone. And it was uh, Bill Putman, who's Jim Putman's dad. And one of the things that I have done for the last several years is I train church planters. I train people on how to start new churches. And uh, so he knew that, and he said, uh, because it was an independent Christian church, and that's where I train church planters, most of them, uh, and he said, uh, you know, I just want to tell you about this seminar that we're having. And I thought, you know, this is, this is I actually thought about this just a couple of weeks ago. In 1977, when I was about to graduate from high school at Lord Beaverbrook High School, I had been the president of Students' Council and all that, and I was interested in politics. And I decided, like almost on a whim, that I was going to go to Russia because I wanted to see the other side because my dad's very capitalistic and, you know, I was pretty capitalistic. And so I went to Russia and, well, it turned out that's where I decided that I needed to find out more about the Bible and French. Those are my two resolutions. And it was my French professor, Mac Jacobs, who ended up becoming my spiritual mentor. Anyway, I had that same... I knew now in retrospect, I looked at it, and I thought, well, you know, it's only two weeks away. I thought, what the heck? Let's just go out to Real Life Ministries. So I went out there to explore this church. At that time, it was about 6,500. They were doing great with small groups, and <clears throat> we were trying to understand more about small groups. So I went there, and I uh, listened to their teaching, and I thought, here's what hit me when I went there. Uh, I believe that most Christianity today doesn't teach lordship enough. And when I say lordship, I mean that it's not just enough to say Jesus is my Savior, but there's this level of obedience that the Bible expects if you're a true Christian. It's described at the end of Matthew. It says, uh, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And I feel really strongly about that. And I, I feel like I learned that in the Restoration Movement. That's, that's why baptism was important, because baptism becomes a, sort of a marker on the way that forces you to address, am I really going to obey the Bible no matter what it says? And that's always been a big deal to me. So I went there, and Jim started off with a session he's going to start with tomorrow on discipleship. And I'm like, it's just framing the same thing in a different way. Um, discipleship is about learning to really follow Jesus. It's like Matthew 28. Make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so I'm like, man, I, I really like this. And then I had to do this thing. I have to do this thing with people. If I really like what they're saying, but I'm not sure, I have to have an argument with them. <laughs> because I, I got to figure them out. And the best way for me to do that is have an argument. <laughs> so so I'm, this is true confession. Time. It's not the way you should. I would not commend that to you, but it's how I'm wired. 
So uh, Kevin Vance, this is guy, Alan Hurst. Do you know Alan Hurst? Alan Hurst became a good friend of mine. He's this guy, and I, he's teaching this stuff. And I, I said, I just have to have an argument with you. And he goes, ah, he says, that's okay with me. He says, I'm Jewish. We do it all the time. <laughs> so anyway, um, Jim and I ended up becoming really good friends. And I thought to myself, you know, I really believe this stuff. So what I started to do then is every church planter, we tried to work it out where we could train them with real life ministries. And I asked Jim to be to coach me on living, you know, how to live this stuff out. And that's why I said this morning that it's subtle, sounds easy, but it's actually a really different way of doing Christianity. And I'm convinced it's actually the way that God intended. It's the way that Jesus made disciples. Jesus didn't invite people to church services. He invited them into relationship with him. And in process of being in relationship, he taught them about the kingdom of God and all these other things. So um, we wanted to have a question and answer period. And before we do that, I just wanted to take you through sort of in my investigation, I came up with uh, 10 principles that I think are at work in this other method. It's just the relational discipleship method. So uh, let me walk you through these. I'll, I'll email Kelly this if you want a copy of it. It, would, it was in... Uh, uh, the journal, uh, what's uh, Jim Toon's journal um, for Impact Canada? I don't know, it's, uh, but you can have it, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll make copies available to you. So let me just start off with, in, in, so I'm describing the relational discipleship model. And I tried to do that in practical terms this morning without getting fancy and all of that. My sister was here with her kids, and Shayla, she's like eight or nine, Going home, my sister said, well, what did Uncle Bobby say? And she says, I have no idea. (laughs) I was trying to describe in practical terms what it's to be in relationship with people for the purpose of discipleship and how central that is in the Bible. So, number one, uh, the church's goal is to help each person become a disciple of Jesus. Now, that sounds really simple, but it's really important. Um, each person that we meet, we want them to become a disciple of Jesus. Uh, we used to think in terms of evangelism, we're going to reach lost people. We're going to. Ev- I actually think that language is really not helpful, and in fact, unhelpful, because so much of our Christianity has been about getting converts, and the Bible never teaches us to get converts. It always teaches us to help people to become followers of Jesus, people who trust Jesus enter into a relationship, and then become followers. So, uh, and I believe now that uh, that is the goal of the church. In fact, let me quote to you from Richard Longnecker. Some of you may know who he is. He's actually a Canadian, and he's a New Testament scholar. And here's what he says. The major, fundamental, and underlying theme of the entire New Testament. That's a lot. So, discipleship is the major fundamental and underlying theme of the entire New Testament. And I believe that's right. So number one is discipleship is the goal. By the way, even my friend Kevin, I talked about, you know, we've been buddies for all these years and he doesn't care about Jesus. But you know what? I'm still trying to help him to be a disciple. Um, You know, he's got a long way to go. But you know, if you look at the disciples, let me just ask you this question. In the Gospels, when you read through the Gospels, when were the disciples converted? The answer is nobody's really sure. Jesus said, 
come and follow me. And they totally didn't understand it most of the time. It's like you and me. Okay? But now at some point they do become saved people. But you start the journey of discipleship before you're ever saved. And our hope, best hope for any person is that they would follow us in following Jesus. And so we invite them into this community to follow Jesus with us. Even if they don't know, we're inviting them to follow Jesus with us. It's like the famous missionary in India uh, asked one of the leaders of the community, and he, he said, can I live with you? Because the guy had a place. He said, can I live with you? And the guy said, I don't want to become a Christian. He said, I wasn't asking you. I just want to know, can I live with you? And he said, no, I don't want to become a Christian. I just want to live with you. He says, no man could be in relationship with you and not become as you are. Number two, the end goal is not just making disciples, but making disciples who are making disciples. Think about Matthew 28 for a second. I'm I'm going to tell it to you again. Um, But before I read it or state it, I want want you to, to answer this question in your own mind. Can you obey all the teachings of Jesus and not be making disciples yourself. Here's what it says. Uh, Therefore go. Actually in the original language it doesn't say go. It says as you're going. As you're going make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And sure them with you always to the end of the age. So if my job is to teach people to obey all the commandments that Jesus commanded the early disciples, and one of their commandments was to make disciples, can I say I'm a mature follower of Jesus if I'm not making disciples? So ultimately the goal is not just to make disciples, but to make disciples who are making disciples. Now for some of you, you know that that's true because when you have children, what is the highest goal that you have for your child? Is that your child would be a disciple of Jesus. By the way, interestingly enough, and I don't, I don't know if we'll have time to get into this today, but how did Jesus command parents to make disciples? He commanded them in Deuteronomy 6. It's Deuteronomy 6 lays it down. The whole rest of the, the Bible assumes Deuteronomy 6, right? And here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God. The, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, and love your neighbor as yourself. These commandments that I teach you today, uh, impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you're walking along the road, when you're lying down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them, uh, uh, bind them on your foreheads. Uh, I'm forgetting the exact wording, but tie them as uh, symbols on the door frames of your houses. So here's what Jesus said. There's a guy, anybody here heard of Seeds Music? It's this music for kids that teaches kids scripture. The guy came out of our church. He started to do this in our church in Nashville. He subsequently moved to Idaho. But he and I are working on a book, and it's called Parenting Like Jesus. When we tell people that, they go, well, duh, Jesus wasn't a parent. Not true. Jesus actually inspired Deuteronomy 6. And when you look at how Jesus worked with the disciples, it was based on Deuteronomy 6. It was about doing life and talking about the kingdom of God every chance you get. And that's what parenting is. The parenting is intentional, relational discipleship. Let me just say this. Do you know that studies have been done on the best parenting? What is the best parenting model? High relationship, high expectation. It's the old uh, relation, uh, rules without relationship leads to rebellion, right? Uh, 
Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. Uh, relationship without rules leads to reckless living. But rules with a relationship leads to a righteous lifestyle of your kids. Uh, and all kinds of studies show that that's the best parenting model. That's exactly what Jesus did. Anyway, um, so it's, it, the end goal is not just making disciples, but making disciples who make disciples. Number three, relational environments are the context and environment for making disciples. Um, I, I think I actually understand this better now. It's, it's loving relationships. For years, it would really bother me when I would read through the Bible and you would see this emphasis, as I mentioned this morning, like in uh, John chapter 13, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Um, the, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13 says, what is the goal of the law? If you want to sum up the entire law of God, what is it? It's love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, I can prophesy, I can make great sacrifices, I can do all these things, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. And so it's like, I've always said to myself, it's really important when you read through the Bible to say to yourself, I want to build my life around the things that are emphasized in the Bible. And cherishing doctrine, as we do and as I have done, there was always a disconnect because the biggest doctrine in the Bible is how we love each other. It's very practical. And so environments where we're really seeking to live out that life of love. And by the way, life of love in the Bible is not that everybody has it all together. The reality is, look at how Jesus was with the disciples. The disciples didn't have it all together. They were idiots. But I'm an idiot, and you're an idiot. And it's a bunch of idiots coming together, but saying we're going to try to love each other and follow Jesus. Isn't that the truth? And the other thing that really hit me was, I realized that, uh, like I did my master's degree in counseling. I always tell people, but I'm a lousy counselor because I don't have patience. But one of the things that came out in my counseling training is some of the early writers in psychotherapy and all that would say, if we could just be like the early Christians. And then the guys, O. Hobart Maurer came out with this thing. The early Christians, they really were honest about their sins and their lives. And that's how they could really change things. And then I go through all the 12 steps and it's like, okay, the 12 steps of all the things that have ever been done in North American history to help people with addictions, with pornography, with whatever problem it is, what is the most single successful thing? It's not giving people a Bible and telling them to smarten up. It doesn't work. It's the 12-step program. Well, the guys who started the 12-step program were guys trying to follow what the Bible said. And they just said, we need some habits to really help us get in touch with how people really change. Now, it's been cut off from its Christian roots, but that's how it started. So if you take these two things, if you take, we need to love each other the way the Bible says is the highest priority, and we need to do it in a way where people are really messy, but we enter in with that kind of love and that kind of messiness with the goal of really helping each other to be like Jesus. Doesn't it sound right? It sure, it sure does to me. My uh, brother-in-law was here this morning, and he's a baby Christian, and it was interesting because I wanted to know what he thought about it afterwards because he's, he's real still critical of everything. And he said to me, he said, you know what we talked about this morning? I said, yeah. He said, I believe that. That's right. And I, I believe it's right too. Now let me uh, contrast this relational discipleship that we're talking about. So it's this relational environment of love with educational discipleship. But because most of us are um, products of educational discipleship. Educational discipleship is not what we're talking about. Okay. Um, <clears throat> in fact, here's what I believe. 
I believe the whole concept of Bible colleges and seminaries is going to pass away. Now, I still think there will be some seminaries in that. But as a major way of training ministers and all that, I think it's radically changing. I think the church will be the place where that happens. And part of that is because we were so enamored with information. Let me just read some things to you here. Uh, Without relationships, there is no discipleship, just the passing of information. We cannot accomplish what Jesus wants or be what Jesus wants us to be without doing it Jesus' way, which was relationships. Jesus invited people into these loving relationships. And he said, come and be with me. Come and follow me. He didn't say, okay, everybody, get your scrolls out. I'm going to give you notes. And I want you to memorize all this. He said, come and be in relationship with me. And he created a community. That community is called the church. But it's first and foremost, it was a community. In the Bible, you see this. Jesus' whole methodology is about discipleship through relationship. It's God's word, God's spirit, and God's people is what leads to transformation. God's word, the word is still important, but it's with God's people, so it's relational context, and it's the Holy Spirit that leads to transformation. Getting people in relationship where they keep each other accountable and they grow and they develop is key. Um, So let me just give this contrast. Educational discipleship, relational discipleship. Educational discipleship is that facts and education change us. Relational discipleship is the relationships uh, helping me to be what I want to be or what I need to be changes. Educational discipleship, it's the head. Relational discipleship, it's the head, the heart, and the hands. Educational discipleship emphasizes factual knowledge. Relational discipleship emphasizes life application. I, you know, I know a lot of people who, who know the Bible. They can tell you every book in the Bible. They can tell you all these verses in the Bible but they don't love people. They don't know how to forgive people. They don't know how to serve their neighbor. When I came to faith, I was really shocked at Harding University. I was at Harding University learning the Bible, and they're emphasizing doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Oh, by the way, we we don't have much to do with these black people. Like, what's wrong with that picture? Um, Educational discipleship is study and facts. Relational discipleship is Bible application. Educational discipleship is academic. Relational discipleship is modeling and coaching and real life. Educational discipleship is understanding. Relational discipleship is behavior change. Educational discipleship is content. Relational discipleship is supportive relationship. Educational discipleship requires attention. Relational discipleship requires personal relationship and action. Okay, number four. The relational focus is built around this concept of intentional <clears throat> intentional relational discipleship. It sounds oxymoronish the way I described it there. I'm not just going to be in relationship for the purpose of being in relationship. Let me tell you the problem, the mis- mistake we made actually when I did small groups here and then when I was at the Otter Creek Church of Christ and when we started Harpeth Community Church. By the way, Harpeth Community Church is named after the Harpeth River which is right beside where we live. People go, Harpeth, what's that? It's a river. (laughs) Here's what we did with small groups. We said people are craving relationships. Let's get people in relationships. The best way to get people in relationships is small groups, right? It used to be (laughs) you want to close the back door. They're all coming in for church, and you want to close the back door. And the best way to close the back door is small groups. 
That is not what Jesus did. It was small groups because we're going to help each other to become more like Jesus. So the focus of the small group is not just being together and sharing our stuff. It's being together, sharing our stuff to help each other to become more what God wants us to become. Does that, does that make sense? Um, so it's intentional. Uh, Jim is going to describe this more in the next couple of days, but it's to understand everybody who's in your community, your, your relational community, which will be your small group. You want to understand where they're at in their spiritual development. 90% of people in our churches are still babes in Christ. They might have been Christians for 30 years, 40 years, but they're still spiritual infants. Is that not true? I mean, that's why the world looks at the church and the, and the world looks at the church and says, man, if that's what you guys have to offer, I don't want that. Because what they're seeing is that 90% of the churches, we've never discipled people and helped them to grow to become, to move from infant to uh, child to parent to adult. And so people are looking at baby Christians who don't look any different than the world and they're saying, thanks, but no thanks, I don't want that. So the idea is intentional relationships to help people to take that next step. So for example, in my small group, most of the people in my small group that I talked about this morning, they're babies, they're they're infants. Nobody's ever discipled them and said to them, you know this relational conflict that you have? Jesus says if you won't forgive somebody then he's not going to forgive you. Have you ever dealt with that? You know that guy who keeps doing it to you? Jesus said, don't forgive him just seven times. Forgive him 70 times seven. 490 times. Can you believe that my husband keeps doing that and I've talked to him and we've been through this time and time again and he still does it? That's right. But Jesus said you need to forgive him. And so what what we're trying to do, so all these people are babies except for my apprentice, And he's a spiritual adult who deeply desires to become a spiritual parent. In fact, he called me up and uh, he said, can I meet with you? I said, yeah. And Kevin said, I just want to disciple. I want to reach some lost people. Will you show me how to do that? I'm like, man, that only got put in his heart by the Holy Spirit of God. So the idea is that you're in small group for the purpose of intentional relational discipleship, helping people to grow to the next phase. Number five, the primary method of discipleship is the small group gathering. I don't think it I don't think it has to be there, but I think the primary method of development is relationships. Does that make sense? I like this if it doesn't. Yeah, the the, pri- uh, the primary method of discipleship in this model is going to be the small group. But what's more important than, say, a small group, because small group can get real like, okay, we have our small group and there's you know, all these small group things. That's not the, the point. The point is it's relationships where we're doing life together to help each other to become who, who Jesus wants us to be. I'll tell you one of the best ways. In fact, I will ask you this. How many of you can just think for a minute in your mind of the person who most helped you spiritually? Just get that person in your mind. Okay, whoever that is. Now let me ask you this question. How did they do that? Was it a sermon? Was it a class? Or was it somebody who had a relationship with you? And a lot of you are going to say, because you were really blessed, it was your parents. Your parents loved you well and taught you about Jesus. You didn't always necessarily agree with everything, but it was a relationship. There's going to be somebody in your life that really impacted you. 
And that's the primary way that God changes people, is it's through relationship. Now, the small group is the best way for the average church to do it. We can't have a relationship. You can't describe what's going on. I tell you, in our church, we've got this 12-step program that's going on, and it's fantastic because we have these people who are getting this uh, Celebrate Recovery, so it's, you know, it's people with pornography. By the way, studies say 60% of the men who hear my voice have a problem with pornography. And the church isn't doing much about it. Uh, people who are using drugs. People who are you know, obsessively anxious all the time. See, most of our churches, we don't deal with that kind of stuff. So what we've done through Celebrate Recovery, and it's a program that lots of churches use, you guys can use it, is we provide a relational environment where people really are dealing with those things in a Christ-centered way. My hope is that the small groups will be like that. It's just for some intensive things, the 12th step is really important. So the primary method of discipleship is going to be these small group gatherings. Number six, um, it's important to have a... uh, This model emphasizes a simple discipleship process that everybody knows. If I were to ask you right now, I would think if you were like me, and I have to confess, until I really entered into this stuff, this kind of practical level of the the uh, discipleship process, I was never trained that way. I, I mean, I have a doctorate in ministry, and nobody ever talked to me about a practical process of helping people to grow from non-believer to spiritual baby to to uh, from spiritual baby to child to adult to parent and this model that we're going to talk more about over the next couple of days i want to get bogged down in the details right now it's a it's a very simple discipleship process based on what the bible says the bible uses those terms some of you are spiritual infants some of you are children some of you are adults some of you are parents so how do we help move people through those and to be very intentional about helping everybody to grow through those phases. Number seven, uh, the church staff focus on developing small group leaders. Uh, I described it this morning this way. The role of full-time people in ministry ought to be developing leaders. The idea where, like I'm in ministry, and so I go visit everybody in the hospital, and I pray with everybody who's got problems, you don't find that in the Bible. You just don't. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, the things that you have, uh, Paul says, the things that you have heard me say entrust to reliable men who are able to teach and instruct others. The whole idea is that we are raising up an army of leaders, men and women, in their respective areas in the church so that the church is not dependent on any one person or a group of people, but you create an army of people. At Real Life Ministries, I will say this about them, they, they you know, when you have eight thousand people in 800 small groups the only way you can do that is if you have raised up lots and lots of leaders and when you raise up lots and lots of spiritual parents who can disciple people it's just very cool way cool we're starting to see it now we'll have people baptizing people and we don't even know who you know oh yeah you guys got to tell us about that you're leading all these people to christ we want you to tell us about that you know, because we've raised you up, you're leading other people, and it's great. We want to share that as a church. So it's constantly raising up other people, and especially small group leaders. Number eight, uh, there is complete alignment among all the leaders on the theology and philosophy of the church. Let me just describe it this way. This is something I would really encourage you guys to work on. It's called alignment. 
You say alignment. Terry, when you came to faith in Jesus, you came to faith in Jesus, was it in South Africa or Zimbabwe? Sorry? Zimbabwe. You said it probably better than I do. But when you did, now your dad was a preacher, right? But there were certain things that he wanted everybody to believe. Francis, in Nigeria, when you came to faith, it was in Nigeria, right? So when you came to faith in Nigeria, there were certain things that you knew that you were to believe and to hold to as a follower of Jesus, right? Yes. Uh, as I was saying, how I became a, a member of Church of Christ, yeah. it's not through my parents, it's through a friend, and it's because uh, I have a relationship with that guy. That guy, yeah. he invested in you and taught you about Jesus, and he showed you the way of the Lord, right? Yes. Okay, now let me just say this. Um, how many of you dislike legalism? Sign me up for that, okay? I dislike it, okay? But let me tell you what a really big problem that everybody in a church Christ face right now. When you're trying to move out of legalism, you become very much against any hard line points of view because you don't like that. The problem is when you know what you don't believe, it's not the same thing as knowing what you do believe. And in churches that are effective at reaching lost people and transforming communities, they feel good about what they believe. And they want to say, here's what we believe. Here's where we stand. We think this is the right way. Come and join with us. But if you're in this thing where you're embarrassed by what your heritage believed or what your church believed, and you know, there are some people who believe this, that, and the other, and it just creates an environment where you're not going to win people over to it. Does, does that make sense? Go like this if it doesn't, this if it doesn't. Because I, so it is really important that you fought. Now, your elders have done that here. They've said, here are the areas. I think they still need to do a little bit of work on it. But they've said, here are the areas. Here's what we believe. Here's where we're taking our stand. We love you. If you don't like this, we're still going to love you. But we believe this is the way of the Lord. This is what God has called us to uphold in this church. And that is what we're going to do. Now, Jim is going to hammer on this probably. And some of you will be offended by it. But I'm just going to tell you because I believe it too. I don't believe women should be elders or the preacher in the church. And I believe it's a serious compromise of Scripture when you go that way. Now, you can debate that from morning until night for the next five years. And while you're debating that, I just want to tell you, you don't have a clear message to the community. And in our church, in Nashville, we have said, here's what the Bible teaches. Here's where we're taking a stand. If you don't agree with this, we love you, but we're not changing. Because this is the way of the Lord, and this is where we're going. And I picked that as one example. For us, another one is baptism. I cannot tell you the number of people who kick and fuss and all this stuff about baptism. But we're not changing. And if you don't like it, we love you, but this is not the place for you. Another area for us is one saved, always saved. I live in Southern Baptist heaven. and so, or hey, not, not heaven, it's uh, Mecca. <laughs> Southern Baptist Mecca. Okay? <laughs> And they make a big deal out of once saved, always saved. Well, I'm a Canadian from Calgary. I never met all these people. It's once saved, always saved, no matter how you live. That's how you can get these rap singers up there. You know, they have this song about all these women that they've been to bed with and all this. And they can get up there and say, I'd like to thank the Lord Jesus for this, this award. And it's like, what is going on? Well, it's this doctrine of once saved, always saved, no matter how you live. And like we have just said, we don't believe that. We think that's heresy. If you believe that, that's fine, but we don't, and we're not going to uphold that. And we have had tons of people who say, well, I can't be a part of a church 
that, that doesn't believe in the security of the believer. Well, I'm sorry. We don't believe that. We're not changing. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Now, there are other areas where you say, look, we have made this decision. For example, speaking in tongues. I have guys on my staff at church who speak in tongues. And I'm, if, if God leads them to speak in tongues, I'm great with that. Now, if they're going to speak in tongues in a small group, we're going to have an interpreter. And I've never met anybody yet who wanted to have an interpreter. So, you know, but if, but if they want to speak in tongues in their, at home and do all those things, God bless them. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because that's where we take a stand. That's what alignment with us is. And so here's what happens when you do that. And Jim will talk more about this. But when you say, here's our theological alignment, here's where we're standing, guess what you get to do? You get to end all those endless debates about all these theological footballs that are not going to help anybody to go to heaven anyway. And you get to focus on the practical things like, how are you doing with pornography? How are you doing loving your kids and investing time in your kids? How are you doing really being honest at work? How are you doing overcoming your workaholism? Do you understand what I'm saying? Because Mark Twain once... uh, You guys have heard of Mark Twain? (laughs) I, I love the thing. Somebody came to Mark Twain. They said, doesn't it bother you that there are things in the Bible you don't understand? And he goes not nearly as much as the things I do understand. The hardest things in the Bible are not all these intellectual issues. It's, it's really loving people the way Jesus teaches me to love. It's really sacrificing financially for the poor and the needy. It's really making sure that I put the kingdom of God first. It's those things. It's not, you know, what's the correct view of Revelation chapter 20. And so you establish a theological alignment and you say, to be unified with us, this is where we stand. And I'm just telling you, if you're reacting against legalism, you probably won't like that, but I just want to tell you, get over it. For the sake of being faithful to Jesus and having a healthy church, just get over it. Um, so it's theological alignment, is philosophical. We have made a decision. For us as a church, we have made a decision that we're going to focus on small groups and uh, relational environments for discipleship. Now, for you guys, you think, well, what does that matter? Well, I live in an area where it's, there's a lot of competition between churches. Like, you know, do you have really good praise and worship? And, like, I planted the church that, that, that I'm a part of. Michael W. Smith. You guys heard of Michael W. Smith? So he plants a church a mile down the road. And so it's like, can't we have praise and worship like their church? No! Because we're investing our money in ministry staff to have really good small groups and really good youth ministry because we think that's the, what Jesus would emphasize. He wouldn't emphasize a Sunday show. Um, again, that's you establish this alignment. You say, this is who we are. This is where we're going. And we're not changing. And it takes elders' courage to do that. Now, your elders here are on that journey. And I, I just want to encourage you all to support them. You may not like it, but you know what? If you don't like it, go find another church. Because the last thing churches need to do is to be fussing and fighting about all these little piddly things that don't matter at the end of the day. You're far better off to say, this is who we are, this is what we believe, this is where we're going, and if you don't like it, go somewhere else. Now, they didn't tell me to say that, but I'm telling you that. (laughs) And the Bible says that too. Thank you, Matt. 
Um, leader, number nine, leadership repetitiously focuses upon and casts the vision for the church's basics. You repetitiously cast this vision and talk about these basics. It's like, that's who you are. That's what you keep coming back to. It's all about encouraging people to get in relationships. It's all about real life discipleship. And you keep saying it again and again and again and again and again. And number 10. Um, strong, risk-taking leadership. Strong, risk-taking leadership. Now, I want to tell you guys something that I can tell you because I'm a Canadian. I do not have U.S. citizenship. So I am not about Canadians. Canadians just have a hard time sometimes making decisions. I had a guy, and I'm not going to tell you who he is. Most of you would know him. And he said to me, that Putman stuff won't work in Canada. I said, really? I said, why is that? He couldn't really give me an answer. And you know what I said in my mind to him? I prefer his way of doing it badly to your way of not doing it at all. I, you know, we, we're not going to win the world the way God wants us to unless we're going to do risky things. It's just risky and everybody's not going to like it. And if, if we're in churches where we think everybody has to be happy with it, let me just tell you, that's not going to happen. That's why God appoints leaders and the leaders need to risk. They need to, to risk and say, this is where we're going and we're going to go and it may not work, but we're going to go. And that's what we're going to do. And it takes strong leadership in a church to really lead into the kind of territories that we need to go into. It takes men, men, and in their areas, women of backbone, who say, I don't care. I don't care. This is where we're going. So let me just stop there and throw it open for questions, um, comments, and that kind of thing. I hope, hope that's somewhat helpful to you. Now, Jim will unpack it all in great detail over the next couple of days. Uh, yeah, Miles. And I'll, Trevor, I'll try to repeat the question. Go ahead, Miles. I have an interesting comment listening to some proper parts of my head. Um, this morning we were talking about going to the bank to transfer some money. And you were talking with a fellow that had grown up in the Church of Christ Pride, as you refer to it. Yeah. So you saw, you know, you've got, you know, the, the things you were talking about, about the uh, baptism and this and that and the other, that kind of thing. Um, uh, you're not going to find that everywhere. Now, just a few minutes ago, you said, well, speaking of alignment, that if you don't agree with these things, then we love you, but this isn't the place for you. Yes. That's correct. Well, here in Calgary, you've got lots of options on those things. You've got other restoration churches. You've got uh, Bow Valley. You've got, uh, is it still uh, Oak Park? Yeah. you got Journey. You've got, uh, where's John Nicholson? Ross Carrick? Ross Carrick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what I would do then, Miles? Then I would say, I'm going to get along with these people. I'm going to submit to the leaders. Because, yeah. you know, the church is not a democracy. 
I'm, the church is not a democracy. God set it up that it would be elder-led. And if the elders say, this is where we're going, and hopefully there's evangelists who are saying, as, as point men leaders, this is where we're going, and, you know, if, if this is where they're going and you don't like it, well, either decide you're going to leave or you're going to get along and go with them. And in a lot of cases, I think people just need to go with it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Canadians, you know, we don't like leadership. I mean, it's part of a North American problem, right? Everybody sees the faults of the leaders. I, I just tell you, being a church leader is, is incredibly difficult. I was the general manager of Goliath Tractor Service for five years, a trucking company here in town, and I can tell you church leadership is at least twice as hard as business leadership. And if you're planning a church, it's three times as hard. Kevin? <laughs> and, you know, I know we all have our opinions in that, but if these are godly men leading in a godly way, we may not agree with everything, but we're going to say, I'm going to get on board and get, go with it. Kelly. Kelly, just for the sake of the tape, I promised Glenn that I would uh, repeat the questions. Trevor, we probably want to pass around the mic. I think that might be better. 
because I, I think we're missing. Kelly's, Kelly's comment is more about um, how many of us are really intentional about making disciples. Let me reverse it because I actually think what I'm about to ask you is really related to what you do. How many people feel like you were personally, intentionally discipled? We got three out of 100. Here's what my experience is with people. When we start talking about this, people say, well, you know, this makes sense and I like it, but nobody discipled me. Now, Francis, you started talking about it. You said there was a man who had a relationship with you. Do you think he discipled you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you came to know the way of the Lord more fully in terms of some of these doctrines. Let me just jump in here. It's okay, Trevor, with this. Miles, um, in some ways you've been discipled. Do you agree with that? Probably not as much as you would like to have been. One particular person, but I can think of people throughout my life, little bits here, little bits there. Yeah. That like when you and Dana got impact. married, I will say this. When you and Dana got married, I did the wedding. Cindy and I invited you into a small group with us. And part of that was the purpose of discipling you and Dana in how to have a Christian marriage. Now, there's a bunch of areas we didn't address. But I I would say at least you had some discipleship in that area, even if you are not going to admit it publicly. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Here's here's the vision that that I I would uh, try to impress upon all of you. you know, you all know this. I'm just going to say it. Some of you may not know it. And I, I, I'll just say it. Your Sunday services, to some extent, are not as satisfying as you'd like. Some of you would like them to be. Some of you think they're fantastic. But um, here's something that I can say to all of you: everybody should be get it, get, be able to get excited about a community of people trying to follow Jesus together where you can invite people into your small group to follow Jesus with you. And if your purpose is to be in a small group really committed to authentic discipleship and to invite people into that kind of relationship where they're going to be, where they're going to love and be loved with you, does that not excite you? And everybody can do that. And I think that some of us have to say, just a second, Anthony, I'll come to you. I think that many of us have to say, look, nobody really... Now, I think I was discipled but I think I was not discipled intentionally. Some of you know Mac Jacobs. I think Mac Jacobs tried to disciple me. Uh, I think some of my professors tried to disciple me, but I don't think they were real clear-minded about it. It was like we'd bring up Carol Osborne. How many of you remember Carol Osborne? Carol Osborne, we'd go up to Banff together. Like He was discipling me big time, but it wasn't like intentional. It was just we were in this relationship. We were talking about Jesus. We were talking about life. He was in my home. Do you understand what I'm saying? How much better is it if if we say to people in our lives, I'm going to try to love you and help you to be the person Jesus wants you to be, and I'm going to disciple you. And I'm going to share my life with you and ask you to share your life with me to help you to become this person that God wants you to be. And we can say, I don't know how to do all that perfectly. By the way, we have some tools um, that are going to really help you to do that in small groups. The orality is a great tool. My guy, Kevin, uh, Kevin, talked to me on Thursday. He said, you know the thing I like about orality is going through all these stories? Because you have to learn the story and then you tell the story in your small group. And, you know, you take different turns. 
is everybody learns these stories in the Bible. He says, the great thing for me is I can go back and I can tell my kids those stories because I know the stories. And so he says, I'm discipling my kids by learning this stuff. But everybody can, can make a decision now. Look, I may not have been discipled, but I'm going to do my best to disciple other people. And I'm going to create a small group that I feel good about that I can invite people to. Terrence, you talked about being in small groups that you felt good about. Why can't you go out and do that with other people and say, hey, I'm going to have a small group. Maybe it's just men. We're going to get together early in the morning before we start work, and uh, we're going to try to do life together and and follow Jesus together. Anthea. I I wanted to touch base on Kelly's comment. Um, I grew up as a Catholic, but someone came and talked to me about, because I was not happy there and I was searching. So someone did talk to me about God and got me on the path of wanting to find Jesus. Um, That individual was a Pentecostal. I really did not feel comfortable in that church, but whichever way he planted a seed in me that I wanted to continue searching for Jesus. So what Kelly was saying is we go out and we talk to people. So we plant in the seed. It's not up to us to water it. We plant in it, God's watering it. That person doesn't have to come to your church even though you invite them, or they can come and they don't feel, maybe they don't feel comfortable or they don't like where it is, but they go out and they still become Christians somewhere else and follow and, and do get baptized and go about their ways. And that was how... I went about my life is someone brought it to me I mean I was searching I found Jesus and I didn't follow that church I came to the church of Christ so and this is where I feel I, I am this is my basis you know what I mean yeah. so in, in, in that respect we do touch people sometimes unknowingly we plant that seed Jesus is going to water it somewhere. Yeah. And that person will take root. No, no, I think, uh, yeah, I I definitely think that you're on the right path. Let me just say this. One of the things I want to make a move here for you to understand. Um, When I became a part of a church of Christ, what I appreciate is that I was taught a healthy doctrine on baptism that I hadn't seen before, on being countercultural, on obeying scripture, uh, and on all those things which are really good. What I wish I would have been told is those things are really important, but the first and most important thing is that you be involved in loving community for the purpose of discipleship. If the order would have been reversed, in other words, if it would have been primarily loving relationships for the purpose of discipleship, oh, and by the way, we really emphasize biblical doctrine on baptism, we emphasize biblical doctrine on elders and all that. If that had been secondary and honestly a little bit more on grace, if those things had been made front and center along with these other things, it's not that you should forget them. It's just they don't need to be the first and most important things. And so if we engage in people, and I'll just, isn't it true when people's lives are being changed because of wholesome relationships where they're learning about Jesus, that's winsome to everybody. And I'd far sooner be about inviting people into those communities than I would to a great Sunday morning show where you can hear great preaching and have great music and all those things. Now, I do think you need to do a really good job on Sunday morning.
because some people won't get into small groups if you don't. But I just think that the small groups and the relationships are more important than the Sunday morning show. 7 o'clock, maybe we're done. I'm not really sure where to address this question, but it's come into mind a number of times as we've talked about the Jim Putnam stuff. Let's just call it relational discipleship. (laughs) Okay, the relational discipleship. My parents' church, my dad's church, has been doing it for about two years or so. So it's not, like Jordan and I have been exposed to it for a while. But where do you begin as a starting point when you have, so say we got this list this morning of all the small group leaders. Yeah. And you said one of the most critical things is to make sure that you all have the same theology and philosophy. Yeah. And secondary to that, those leaders should be leaders. Yeah. So how did you start it in your church? Well, you're asking really good questions. You make sure that those leaders are qualified to start leading and are supporting your... Jordan, you married well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Carrie's asked a really good question. Let me just tell you, we've been working at this for four years to make a change. What I call it is a DNA redo. And it's, um, it's more difficult than you think. Now, in church planting circles, let me tell you what we do. The elders asked this question yesterday. By the way, it's a similar question. It's, what do you do with the church that's over 100 years? Because when you're 100 years, you have DNA, right? You have spiritual DNA. And um, in church planting circles, we have this saying, it's much easier to have babies than it is to raise the dead. Now, I'm not saying you're dead, <laughs> but I'm saying that oftentimes it's easier to start fresh, right? So, Carrie, I'm going to describe to you what we're trying to do, and, you know, it's what I, what I would commend. The first and most important thing is that Kelly and the elders and anybody on staff, they have to eat, sleep, and drink and live out this stuff. So every Sunday morning, Kelly ought to be telling you about the life change that he's seeing in his small group. Every time you're with one of the elders, they ought to be talking about what they're doing and how they're experiencing it. Because um, as, as the head goes, the body follows. Um, you know, you can't lead where you don't go. You can't teach what you don't know. And you can't give what you can't show. So, but the good news is, I, I think people are really, the leaders here are really wanting to do that. But it really requires a totally different way of thinking. And and it's really hard to do that, to change. Don't, what's the old expression? You don't teach, you can't teach a, an old dog new tricks unless he really wants to learn them. Um, so the first thing is the leaders, but I think the leaders here are really on that path. Um, that's, that's what I believe. Would you guys say that? Do you feel like you're on that path? Yeah. So, so it's a really hard thing, but it starts with the leaders. Then they need to go through the whole process. You need to ask everybody who's in any leadership position at this church that they're lined up with you. And if they're not lined up, if you're a small group leader and you're not lined up, you should resign. When I was here and when I went, first moved to Nashville, you know, you don't want to lose anybody, so you're kind of like hesitant to say things like that. But what I've learned is you end up compromising to keep people and you're trying to keep everybody happy, but you really don't keep everybody happy. So you should just do what God wants you to do and trust him with when people don't like it. 
So I'd make sure, number one, that we're living it out, that we're eat, sleeping and drinking it, that uh, we make sure that everybody in every leadership position is aligned. And if they can't be aligned, you ask them not to lead. Uh, the biggest problem you're going to face right now is you'll have small group leaders who they want to lead a small group, but they're not committed to discipleship because nobody ever discipled them and they don't know how to disciple. And so that's going to be your biggest problem because people will go into small groups saying, okay, I want to change and I want to be more like Jesus and I want to experience this and they'll go into a small group and they'll be severely disappointed because the small group leader thought that he got it, but he really didn't. Does that make sense, Carrie? Yeah. 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 It's chaos, right? And uh, we, one of the things we've done in our church is the more we've held to it. I'll give you an example. I had a guy in our church, and uh, he liked our church, and he came in. And he said, "Okay, I'll be a part of this church." And what you know, he had an Anglican background, you know, so you know he got saw what the Bible says about baptism, so he and his wife, they embraced baptism and stuff like that. But we didn't really push it. And uh, he seemed like a good guy. He had a real servant's heart. So we uh, we wanted to do this thing in Uganda. Well, he wanted us to work with Anglicans. Well, I'm like, man, this is not going to work. You know, so we, he said, well, they're not like that over there. They're not like North American Anglicans, blah, blah, blah. So we go over there. No, they were. And... And and finally, I just had to say, Lonnie, we're not going to do this. It's not aligned with us. So he made this big hubbub, and he leaves in anger and says we're controlling and all these other things. The problem is that we weren't clear about alignment to begin with. And if we'd have been clear from day one, they need to realize this is not a church for everybody's opinions and where you can just think whatever you want. There are certain things we believe that are worth taking a stand on. What we do is we have a faith statement, by the way, we delineate there's essential things that you have to believe to go to heaven and hold to. There are other things that are really important that the health of your Christianity is dependent on them. You can go to heaven and not believe these things, but you're not going to be a healthy Christian if you don't. Let me give you an example. I think a, a high view of the inspiration of Scripture is vitally important for the health of Christianity. There are, I have friends who don't believe Paul wrote... I was going to say, I have friends who don't believe Paul wrote Second Peter. <laughs> I have friends who don't believe Paul wrote Second Timothy. You know, and I have people who have strange beliefs on other things. I still think they're going to go to heaven. I just think they have very unhealthy beliefs. And if you're going to be a part of this church, you can believe that if you want, but you can't teach it. I have one guy, he's a really Christ-like guy, but he believes the second coming's already happened. Okay? He's not going to teach in our church. He's a great guy, but he's not going to teach in our church. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so we're much more rigorous about that now. But in the long run, it really makes the, the whole organization much healthier. The church is a much healthier culture when we know what we believe and where we're taking a stand. So back to Carrie's question, which is a very good question. By the way, I think you need outside guidance because you have blind spots. You think you get it when you don't. One of the things that we did to, to embrace this model is I had all my staff and all of us go through the training. Jim Putman's been my friend and coach through all this stuff for the last several years. When we had the opportunity to hire a new small groups minister, we hired it from Real Life Ministries. 
because it's such a different way of doing church and we have so many people of the old DNA that just requires constant work at the new model. So, does that help? There's a book, by the way, I told the elders yesterday. It's a Harvard Business School book. It's called Leading Change by John Cotter. And I really recommend that people, this seven-step process based on all the research theory on change. The first is you create a sense of urgency, which I think you've got. The second thing you do is you build a guiding coalition, and then you seek to move through, through that process. I feel like I'm going on and on here. Let me just say this, and then uh, we can pro- probably call it to an end, Kelly. Uh, I, I just want to say this. If, if, I were, if I were a person who was a part of the church like I was when I was working with my dad in his trucking company, First of all, I would want to give the elders the benefit of the doubt and thoroughly learn all this stuff as best I could because I think you owe it to your elders to do that. The fact that these guys have waded through all this and they said, this is where we're taking our stand. If you are a part of this church, you owe it to them before God to do your best to follow them. And if you're not going to do that, there's something wrong in your heart because of what the Bible says. We're to honor our leaders. That doesn't mean they're perfect because I can tell you they're not. But we're to honor God-given leadership with what he says. So that's the first thing I would do. The second thing I would do is I would say, look, I don't like any of those small groups. Fine. Why don't you lead one? Why don't you get Jim's book on real-life discipleship and learn all you can about discipleship and lead a group that's living this out? I have yet to meet a person who didn't agree when they thoroughly understand that this is a more biblical model for church. In fact, let me tell you this story in closing just to show you my bias and where I'm at. Um, You all probably don't know the name Avery Willis. Does anybody know the name Avery Willis? A couple guys do. Avery Willis was, uh, uh, he's a Christian guy. He's a Southern Baptist, but the good kind. We have a lot more in common with Southern Baptist. I did my doctorate at Southern Baptist Seminary, and on most things, they're pretty close. It's just that they're called Baptists, but they got baptism wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, he uh, was in Indonesia, and he and some others, they led two million people to give their lives to Christ through this commitment to discipleship. He came back. He was almost the head of the Southern Baptist denomination, Very highly, highly respected guy. He went and looked at this model and he said, this is the most biblical model I have ever seen in a church. He went back and he got in touch with the guy who's the head of publishing for the Navigators. Have you all heard of who the Navigators are? The Navigators, Dawson Trotman started the Navigators as this commitment to discipleship. Nav Press publishes a lot of literature. Okay, they're totally committed to discipleship. So he got this guy, his name's Barry Sneed. For 20 years, he was a consultant for all these churches. Now he's in charge of Nav Press. Barry goes out there and he looks at this model. And independently of Avery Willis, he comes to the same conclusion. This is the most biblical model for doing church that I know. Okay? This other friend, his name's Jerry Harris. He leads a church in Quincy, Illinois. We're in this coaching group and he listens to this stuff and he says, I got to go learn more about this. He goes out there. He learns more about it. He says, you know what? 
He says, I've been focusing on this big show on Sunday morning, this relational discipleship. It's, it's more biblical. We're going to change our whole church. And they changed their whole church. So Jim Putman asked me, Barry Sneed, Jim Harris, and this guy named David Platt. Do you guys know who David Platt wrote the book Radical? He's the new, if you know who Francis Chan is, and most of you don't know who Francis Chan is because I surveyed this morning. So let me just say, David Platt is one of the most right-on biblical writers, and he's captured the hearts and minds of millennials. And I just commend what he says to you. He was invited to this thing, but it's, he was there for part of it, but not all of it. I, I'm kind of going into detail. But here's what I have found. The conclusion that I came to, that this is the way forward, that this is the most biblical model of church, and that this is where we need to go. That's what Avery Rollis came to. That's what Barry Sneed came to. That's what Jim Harris came to. So we're in Colorado Springs at the Nav- Navigators. And... Um, I'm not sure if I should tell you guys the story. But it's too late. It's like my wife says, you're too late now. So anyway, we hammered out for two days. Are we going to commit ourselves to creating a network of churches that this is what we're going to do? And for two days, we fought about it and worked it through and, and really hammered out, is this really what Jesus says? And I committed to it. Jim Putman committed to it. Jim, uh, Jerry Harris committed to it. And Nav Press says, if you guys do this, we will create literature to support this relational discipleship network of churches. So we all committed to, to train other churches and to raise up church planters who are going to live this out. We went up to the mountaintop. They buried Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, up on the top of this mountain. So we went up there. Just We thought it would be kind of a you know, sentimental way to just pray together. So we go there, it was this moonlit night, and the stars are out there. I mean, these guys are praying. You know, you're talking about God's promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. By the way, my background with all this is when I became uh, convinced of the truthfulness of, of the Bible and the kingdom of God, when I really got it, which was like six months after I'd, you know, gone to Harding and was studying the Bible, it was six months after that, and I realized my mom and dad were lost, my grandparents were lost, my sisters were lost, and I prayed to God, God, whatever it takes, please help me to reach my family. And for the first years of my walk with Jesus and realizing the state of lostness, I said, i got to do everything as an individual to reach as many lost people as I can. So I went to the UFC and studied philosophy of religion and all that. And I realized it's not up to the individual because I would try to win people to Christ. But if I didn't get them involved in church, it just wasn't working. So I thought, well, then the best thing is to work with the church. And then I realized, well, okay, we've got to work really hard on church. And I realized it's not a church. It's a group of churches working together on the same thing. So when we went up there that night and we were praying, it was, uh, I just really felt like it was a God thing. And there's a statement that came into my mind. And it was out of a book that I'd read. But I couldn't remember the whole statement. It was, uh, it was the world has yet to see what God can and will. And I just remember thinking, oh yeah, that's a really cool, st- what is it? I couldn't remember the rest of it. And we're praying and all that, and you know. So I'm, oh yeah, I gotta think about what we're praying about. And so we're praying and 
And then afterwards, there's five of us standing there. We're going to go down. And Luke Yetter, some of you know Luke Yetter. He says to me, you know, he says, you know what came into my mind? <laughs> he says, I think it was A.W. Tozer. I interrupted him. I said, he was a Canadian, you know. <laughs> but he goes, uh, I think it was A.W. Tozer. And, I, and he said, uh, the world has yet to see. And then at the same time, we both remembered. And it was a D.L. Moody statement. And here's what it was. The world has yet to see what God can and will do through the man who is totally committed to him. I aim to be that man, D.L. Moody. And in the 1800s, they said that nobody was more effective in influencing people for Christ than D.L. Moody. And for me personally, I believe this. I've, I have now committed my life to living this out and helping everybody that I know to live out relational discipleship. So may God bless you. I hope that this has been encouraging to you. You're dismissed.